All right. Lesson three continued. All right, let's pray, um, and then we'll get back into it. Father, thank you for this evening together. Pray, Lord, that this time would be beneficial. Um, Lord, that it would be glorifying to you, uh, that it would be helpful to us, that, Lord, in all of it, as we talk about studying your word, that we would stand in awe of you, our God, who has chosen to reveal himself to us, that uh, the almighty God of the universe, the judge of all mankind, is our Father. And so we rejoice in you and in your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're, we're trucking on here in lesson three, and we were just getting to this part of um, debunking misinterpretations of genre. And so we're going to look at a couple of those uh, and just talk through those as we finish out this lesson. Um, and so we, we talked quite a bit about biblical genre and how that has a, has a major effect um, on our interpretation and how important it is for us to understand that. And so we'll look at a couple of, um, of things and see what we agree with and don't agree with in the interpretation and the methodology and conclusions that, that are used to find it. So the first is Isaiah. Do I have these passages printed on your... Okay. Does somebody want to read that? Out loud. I'll read it. Okay. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to, for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Okay, so our interpretation here is Christians have been wrong to see this prophecy as referring to Jesus. In the Old Testament context, the sign is given to Ahaz. Moreover, the prophecy is fulfilled in the next chapter, which we included here in our text. So what do we think of that interpretation of this text? Agree, disagree, why? You're immediately removed from the class if you agree. <laughs> Maybe it's not, but Jesus was named Emmanuel. Was that his middle name or something? Emmanuel. So what what is the problem with um, Looking at this and saying, well, there was a literal fulfillment right there. And we see it right in the next chapter. So this can't be talking about Jesus. Because it was confirmed in the New Testament that it was Jesus. Okay. So we got a big problem with that. And that's, the, that's part of the accusation, right? Is that they're playing fast and loose with the, the scriptures to make it fit their new bold claims about who Jesus is. But do you remember, and this was... You know, if we had just gone through this, this, um, 
if we had just gone through this whole lesson tonight and then got to this, it would be a little more fresh in our minds of what we talked about with biblical prophecy and how it can work. And that is, um, there can be a near far fulfillment of these prophecies. It, there's, a, there's an immediate prophecy, and this was, was the example we used, or one of them, um, this prophecy from Isaiah. There is a near fulfillment, um, but there is also a, a greater fulfillment to come in this. And so that's what we see going on. And again, we said the New Testament is what actually helps us understand that that's what's going on. We don't just get to do that with any Old Testament prophecy and go, well, there's, you know, there's another fulfillment to come and then make up whatever thing our cult we want to start wants to, to do. Um, and so, so let's just look at the next one because we did talk about that one a little bit the other night. Um, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Somebody want to read that? Remember the Sabbath day to keep holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so our interpretation, no one will argue that the Ten Commandments aren't binding on Christians today. Then why do we disregard the Sabbath command? Should we observe Saturday and not Sunday as a day of rest? Because... That's when the Jews rested. Furthermore, work of any kind on the Sabbath should be prohibited. What do we think about this interpretation of that? Yeah, it's it's out there. It's a it's not uncommon. Is it valid? Do we agree with it? I think it's So, we, we talked um, Tuesday night about the law and the threefold use of the law, and this is getting somewhat into that. Um, do we see any of this as fulfilled in Christ? Um, so, is there any reference in the New Testament to Sabbath rest and someone being that Sabbath rest? <laughs> so, we'll just keep it moving along. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Right, and so so there is a a, um, a mistaken assumption that we've got a one to one carryover from this command in the old covenant to the way that it works itself out among the new covenant people of God, for whom Christ is the end and fulfillment of the law. And so, it's not that we should take it lightly. In fact, we shouldn't. And I think I think we probably often take it too lightly. Um, this command of the Sabbath. Um, we just assume, I think we take the law of God too lightly in general. Um, and we assume it doesn't apply to us. Um, and, and yet we, we must understand it in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, we must understand it in light of that. Um, and so this, this 
this Sabbath command and this Sabbath uh, observation in the Old Testament has been replaced by something much better uh, in the person of Christ. And um, and so I, I you know, I, I often think in, in light of this that the, the New Testament concept of the Lord's Day is a helpful category for understanding how it is that we relate to the Sabbath. Um, that that um, we do have a day that is to be designated to the Lord. And Christians don't all agree about how that works itself out. Can you watch football on that day? Because that's people working, or it's not for recreation. And even, even um, you know, some of the great, you know, the... Uh, some of the great confessions would would say no. You don't. You wouldn't do any recreation or anything like that. Um, but we, but we do have an understanding of how the Sabbath works itself out. But um, it is a it is a misunderstanding of the law and a misapplication of the law um, to do what this interpretation is doing. All right. Look at number uh, Psalm forty four. Again, we're just trying to apply the things we talked about Tuesday night to our interpretation. Somebody want to read this for us? Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover us? For he knows the secrets of our heart, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Okay. <laughs> Interpretation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this psalm is troubling. It teaches us that sometimes God forgets about, about us, even goes to sleep. Or I suppose it could be teaching us that it's okay to, get, to question God or get angry with him. Either way, it's hard to see why this is in the Bible. What what do we say to to that? What's the failure of that interpretation? Well, oh man, we we had it was the last time that we had Campus Life come do a presentation in our church, and the Campus Life director got up and told us of this trip they took to Florida. Oh, and the kids, oh, they stood on the beach and the time of prayer and. I remember some of them just shouting at God and raging and what a beautiful moment. <laughs> okay, you're never coming back again. That's not good. We don't support you anymore. <laughs> wow. It's not a good idea, uh, by the way, uh, to do that. Uh, and so, so what, what's, what's, what's one, one of the misunderstandings of interpretation going on here? Say what? Genre, right? So this is a what? It's a poem. So so there are feelings being expressed here. There are expressions being used. Does the psalmist think that God is asleep and ignoring him? The psalmist does not think that God is asleep and ignoring him, but he is expressing in poetic language great anguish and turmoil. He, he doesn't believe that God is asleep and ignoring him because he's crying out to God and expecting God to hear his prayer. He does feel it, right? So we can 
we can identify with that. Sometimes what we know to be true and what we feel aren't exactly the same thing. So that's what's going on. Um, is this condoning anger with God? It's good for us to rage at him and accuse him. It's, it's bad for us to do that, by the way. What, what happens in the Psalms when the psalmist makes a statement like this to God? God, where are you? God, why do the wicked um, prosper? What, whatever, whatever it is, what, what happens in the same psalm? Right. And so if we kept reading another verse, um, we, would, we would see more in this psalm uh, of the psalmist's heart towards God, his disposition towards God, which is one of worship and trust. And so, um, so we have to be careful with the genre that we are dealing with um, and using that. And this is what the, these, again, all of these examples we're using are things people do. They'll use these things and go, so this is what God wants for us. He wants us to rage at him. He does not. Hey, want so that. just a, uh, a pastoral ministerial note on that. And that is no matter what capacity you serve the Church of Jesus Christ, you're going to come up with people who feel deep, deep woundings and hurt and even feel that they'll feel it towards the person who hurt them, they'll feel it towards the church, they're going to feel it towards God. And it, that pattern that we see in the Psalms is really a healthy way of expressing that, as opposed to like, if we just leave it in the realm of, well, we can never tell God if we're upset. Like, mm -hmm. if we can never express that. Uh, that's a really unhealthy way. But to say to them, listen, God knows already how you're feeling. You might as well confess it, because it may very well be sin. Like, you may be wrongly right. accusing God of God. I feel like you weren't there. You let me down. You could have done this and you failed to do it. Help my unbelief and then do what the psalmist does every time but twice, I think, which is come back to, and yet I'm going to trust in you. You are mm -hmm. an unchanging God. Remind yourself of the nature and character of God. So in all that you say, I mean, look at all that Job said. Because mm -hmm. Job expresses all those like, God, you just let my family die. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet in all of that Job did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing so the, it was still anchored in the, the unchanging character of God and as you talk with people it's, it's one thing to express it it's another thing to just rage like the campus life gig was for raging sake well now I've ventilated it and I feel better it, express how you're feeling and anchor it in the unchanging God who still has got you even in the midst of it yep so that, that's a good way to encourage people in the midst of that. Irreverence is never safe. Yeah. It's, it's never right. And that's the, that's the dividing line. The, the psalmist is not irreverent. Job was not irreverent. Um, the, the person who says, I can rage at God, is irreverent. And so we, we do, God knows what we're feeling. We express that to him in prayer, certainly. But we do it. In a, in a posture of reverence and we do it as though God is not our buddy whom we can speak to flippantly mm -hmm. um, and so I remember Andrea and I first started dating and we went to the fair with Matt and Danielle and I used to we started dating and I always talked to her like she was one of my buddies 
and I'd make jokes about her and say this and that like I would my friends. And at one point we're walking and I said something and Matt's like, hey, she's not your buddy. That's a woman. <laughs> you can't talk to her like that anymore. Um, and the truth is we, we have um, a cultural a cultural Christianity that paints God as, as buddy, as, as um, even the, the th- you know, people pray and they're like, Daddy? Yes. Then they do exactly that. What I was going to say. We've painted God as this soft, effeminate care bear in the sky um, or buddy Jesus. And you can mouth off to them. Of course you can. Um, that's not who God is. Um, and so reverence is the is the the dividing line there certainly all right judges four judges four deborah the prophetess someone you want to read that now deborah the prophetess the wife of lapidor was judging israel at the time she used to sit under the palm of deborah between ramah and bethel in the city and country of ephraim and the people of israel came up to her for judgment she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abedam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabar, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, of, Sisera the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you, go, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of the, a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Okay. This is a popular interpretation right here. The text clearly demonstrates that women held positions of leadership within the Old Testament. For we should not bar a woman from being an elder or a pastor in our churches today. That is a really common use of the story of Deborah. Is it valid? If, if it's a historical narrative, which it is, we're talking about a story here, something that happened in the Old Testament, and if we apply that logic of this isn't really a doctrine or something that we're supposed to be pulling to learn from or teach, nothing really being told us this is what you should continue to do this is a story read it as such okay so yeah the the first thing we want to say is it's a major interpretive leap to take any narrative account and and automatically say we're supposed to do what they did Um, a narrative account might be telling us something we should do something to emulate and it might be showing us something we ought not yeah i think what it's showing us and it says at the very end how she says you know into the hand of a woman i think that she's basically telling there you know this is your job you're supposed to be doing this not me and i think we see that in today's society a lot as well when women step up in certain positions because men have mm-hmm. just sat idly by and right pull them pull these women up and be like fine <laughs> you know i mean at least that's how i kind of see some situations so this is a, an indictment, number one, of the men that she's doing this, not something we're supposed to go, we, we ought to keep this, we ought to keep this rolling. Um, the, so, right. So, number one, it's a stretch to say just because it happened 
it's a good thing. Number two, it's a bigger stretch to go. Even if it was a good thing, what does that have to do with women pastoring the church? If you can, if you can kill a guy, you can pastor. Like, what is? Where is the correlation here? Um, so, so this is not a reflection of God's will. Um, and what do we see in the book of Judges? Again, this comes back to um, to contextual interpretation. How, how does the book of Judges begin and end? With what statement? There was no king in Israel. The people did what was right in their own eyes. That is not a way of scripture going, go ye and do likewise. Right? Follow the example of Samson. Go into the prostitutes. It's fine. God obviously blessed him. He was very strong. He got the privilege of having his eyes gouged out and enslaved and bringing a building down on his own head. You know, do do like Jephthah. You know, make the vow. <laughs> no, no, no. That that's not. That's not what's happening in Judges. That statement tells us this: We're, we got a book of bad examples here, guys. These are there aren't there aren't white hats in this story. It's all black hats, and God still maneuvering the pieces of history uh, to accomplish His purposes. All right, Proverbs twenty-two. Verses 4 through 6. Somebody want to read that? Reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay. Well, the meaning is obvious of this passage. If someone is not rich and honorable, they must not be humble. And if parents have a wayward child, it's obviously a sign that they have failed in their parenting uh, because godly parents are guaranteed faithful children. We agree? Yes. I'm sure you've gotten the hint. We don't agree with any of these. That's why they're here. That's why they're the examples we're using. I've heard that interpretation. Yes. Uh, Both of them. (laughs) Both of them are popular in their own way. <laughs> so what's the first, what genre mistake is it making? Okay, so it's a proverb. And what do we know about proverbs? Are they always just direct rock solid guarantees? Do put the put the the coin in the machine and this is what comes up. No, they're truisms, right? And so not in our church. Put the, what? Uh, our church is oh. a Proverbs machine. Put the coin in. You may or may not get that. And you're going to get something. Might be something else. Yeah. Should be fun. Right? These are, these are guidelines for life. They're not black and white promises. Um, and so the, the training up of children in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord will most often, and we should, we should expect... That will be the result. Is it always the result? It's not always the result. Um, and that is not always something you can trace back to the parents. Um, and certainly, um, godly living does not always result in financial blessing or being beloved by the community. Um, 
and uh, we don't need to look any further than the Lord himself to see that, right? Despised and rejected of men. Son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. You know, all of these things. I got to pull the taxes out of the mouth of a fish. All right, John chapter 2, verse 13. Somebody want to read those verses? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the monkey changers. Monkey changers. Can you imagine, though? How much more frantic that scene would have been if there were monkey changers in the room? All right. Interpretation is this. The gospel writers couldn't get their facts straight. The author of the Gospel of John places this incident near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, while the synoptic gospels place it near the end. This demonstrates the gospels are unreliable as historical accounts of what Jesus said and did. I like to think it happened twice. (laughs) Are we, do you mean it? I mean, I do like it. I think it happened twice, actually. Yeah, I actually do think that. I think that's true. Um, but what did we say about gospel? So one, one answer is it happened twice. Um, I happen to believe that. Um, but what's, I don't have to be tied to that. That's not, like a, a, that's not a thought of desperation on my part. Um, like, I'm going to just, I, I, it must be because I can't deal with the, them saying things differently. No, I can deal with them saying things differently, but I actually just think that that's what happened. Um, but what what else do we know about Gospels? When do we say Tuesday? About that genre? They have a theological agenda, not necessarily a order. Yeah. They weren't doing... Now, Luke Luke actually tells us that he's he's setting forth an orderly account. Luke is working sort of like a journalist. It's the closest thing we've got to the kind of history that we expect. But the Gospels aren't trying to do that. So it's not scandalous for one to put it at the beginning and one to put it later at all. They're, they're, they're not exhaustively, rigidly chronological uh, accounts of every single thing that Jesus did. They had a theological point they were making. Um, and so either way, are there two events and they just don't talk about, they, they are picking one that they talk about in their Gospels um, or is it the same event, and for their own purposes, they're telling it in the, in the part of the story that they're telling it. Um, either way, we have to judge the Gospels, not by our modern standards of what we expect a history book to look like, because it's not the kind of literature they are. Um, and so we are doing a disservice to them when we do that. Um, we need to remember the theological agenda that they have, and they're telling us, like I said the other night, what they're telling us in the way they're telling us for their theological purposes. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. So you can see a lot of these common things, and people do this with the Gospels. They love to compare them and nitpick them. These, these examples we're going through are all practical, real-world 
examples. And then a simple understanding of genre. You can see how genre is so important that a simple understanding of genre undermines so many of the dumb attacks that people think they're being so smart with when it comes to the Bible. That's why I said the other night. It's a fancy way of saying I don't know what I'm talking about when they make these arguments. It just happens to be persuasive to other people who don't know what they're talking about. And so we better know what we're talking about. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. All right. So clearly, Paul is laying down an enduring command and straightforward language. Women should cover their head in the church. Um, and if you throw this one out, then you might as well throw out every command that Paul makes to the church. Again, a very common argument. We don't have to look too hard in our community to see it played out. Um, and even, in, even in, in reform circles, this argument persists and is made. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a stupid argument. But what do we, what do we make of it? What's Paul's big point in the passage? Is he, is he primarily concerned with how he, we dress or is he concerned with a certain posture towards God? Right? He's concerned with authority. We are under the authority of God and the wife is under the authority of God and husband. Right? And so um, that's the first thing. We've got to keep in mind what we're, what we're talking about when we, when we look at that. But then we can look at who's Paul writing to. We've always got to ask these questions. Who's writing this? Who's he writing to? And what's going on with them? We talked about this the other night. That, that, uh, or maybe we didn't talk about it. I don't know. I don't remember anymore. It's been quite a week. Where, where, when we're reading an epistle, we're reading somebody else's mail. We're, we're listening to one end of a phone conversation. And we've got to figure out what's going on the, the other end if we're going to make sense of the end we got. And we see that in the epistles. We're trying to, to, and so it helps us to figure out, well, what's going on? And the good news is we're able to do that. So what do, what do we know about Corinth? Does anybody know anything about Corinth that might have something to bear on some of these things Paul's saying about a woman with, with short hair? And Corinth, first of all, was a place of great immorality. Just wickedness. Temple prostitution was was a common practice there. Christians were involving themselves in that, so we see Paul making reference to to the Christian going into the prostitute uh, in his writings to them. Uh, and so Aphrodite was worshipped there in Corinth, and uh, Corinth was so wicked and promiscuous and lustful that the ancient world a a promiscuous woman was called a Corinthian girl. Um, it's a it's a a wicked wicked city, but it's it's also a seaport city, right next to an island that has a name that'll bring another 
concept to mind, and the island's called Lesbos. Now, can we imagine what the women might have been like on Lesbos for us to get an enduring term from that island? These women were, you know, picture the, the Wonder Woman island, except they all shave their heads and do things like hunt wild boars with daggers. Uh, that's Lesbos. Their, their goal was to be manly, manly women. Um, and so they, they were Amazon women, uh, but, but trying to be as manly as possible. And they were in abundance in this city. This is the port city right next to their island. And so they're floating around all over the city. And some of them are becoming Christians. And so that, why does Paul talk about a woman shaving her head in verse 5? Because they shaved their heads. That's why Paul talks about a woman shaving her head in verse 5. The, these women from Lesbos, they would um, shave their head to show, I am under no man's authority. I stand, I am a, I'm an enlightened woman. This is, this is the blue hair of 2022. Or whatever, you know. The, whatever the lunatic women are doing right now out at these uh, rallies protesting the Supreme Court, striking down Roe versus Wade. Those women, like that's these women. But what they did was shave their heads and, and be super manly and butch. And so they wanted to be as androgynous as possible. And Paul's part, point is we are all under authority, all of us. None of us is, is an authority unto ourselves. We're all under the authority of God. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of the wife. God created us male and female, and we ought to act like it. We ought to present ourselves to the world like we are male and female. Uh, and so it's about being under authority. It's about biblical masculinity and biblical femininity and the, the command of God to not reject the good creation of God in making us. So, so that's what's going on here. And then Paul says in verses 14 and 15 what the covering is. He's given to the woman for a covering hair. Um, and so God commands, essentially in this passage, men to be men and women to be women. So I think it is misplaced to say that. Now that doesn't mean any Christian who's like, I think a wife should cover. We have a, some people in our church who the wife will cover her hair. And they're not former Mennonites. They're reformed people. Um, it's fine. It's not dumb. If it's a matter of conscience, you better do it. Um, it's just when they ask me, I tell them why I think it's misplaced. Luke 18. Is this a head covering church now? Yeah. Okay. We're Keep doing it. It is an enduring command. Uh, okay. Luke 18, verse 2. Somebody. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither, neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, <laughs> I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Okay, thank you. So Jesus is equating God with an unjust judge and insinuating that our prayers are a bothering to God or a wearing him down, just like this woman was with the judge. We are annoying to him, and if we annoy him enough, 
I had someone once say to me that they, you know, the squeaky, squeaky wheel gets the oil. And so I just wear God down till he, uh, it's very solid theology. According to this passage, the, the elect are parallel to the widow in this parable. Does that mean that, that the elect are poor and destitute? Um, the, the adversary in verse three, who is that? Okay. So what, what do we do with this interpretation? What do we, when we start looking at all these things, okay, who's the adversary in verse three? Is the elect um, poor and destitute because the woman's poor and destitute? Is God the unjust judge? What mistake are we making when it comes to genre? A parable makes only one point. We're over-interpreting a parable. A parable is making one point. Once we start doing, okay, there's an adversary here. Now, that's got to be, no, we're doing too much. Democrats, obviously. Or Republican, depending on who you are. Right. But if By you're way, a Democrat... Sad, sad time for Republicans. You should be under church discipline. Oh, no kidding. How awful. So parables making... Man. He brought us down a whole octave in a bad way. Um, so... so we have one point we're making and it's calling for a response from the audience that's what a parable is doing luke 18 1 says jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray and not lose heart it actually explains what's going on in this parable that's what we take from this we ought always pray and not lose heart not we're bothering god when we pray we're we're, you know, annoying him enough that he might just do it. God is mean and unjust and capricious. No. So we don't look so deeply at the, the details of the parable for some kind of hidden meaning. That's not how parables work. And people do that again. And you'll see this with, with uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and things like that, that people will argue, like, even in this parable, the religious leaders, they're all... You know, none of them will help. And isn't that how it is? They, they admit it. They admit it. That the religious people, that no, that's not what's going on in the parable. So, um, understanding the various genres in scripture is another way so helpful in our Bible study. Um, so the effort we put forth in that is fruitful and necessary. Um, and it, it helps. I mean, we've, we've seen... Tuesday night throughout the first part of this lesson and tonight, how many common errors are genre errors that, are, that, that people are making? It's the errors that people are buying into and con continually promoting. With an understanding of genre, they are simple. They're not hard for us to see through them. Uh, and so um, let's truck on. Oh, do we not have them? Yeah, let's get those going around. Lesson number four. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's why. Yep, we want to look like men. Male pattern baldness. Baldness? Yes. Manliness is? Yes. 
ceremonial shaving was coming your way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We talked. We we just mentioned a little bit ago. When when we come to a text uh, of scripture, we need to ask ourselves: Who wrote this? Who did they write it to? Um, that that is very important. What is the historical context of this passage? And that's what we're looking at here. Historical um, context is our next sort of interpretive tool, um, because each book. Of the Bible is written with a specific purpose in mind. It's written on purpose. Somebody wrote it and they had a reason that they were writing it. We have a, the divine author who has a reason and we have the human author who has a reason for writing it. Uh, and we need to, to interpret um, each, each part of scripture in light of this. Um, and so we, we, might, we might gain something by not considering that. We, we, th this is the great thing about scripture. It's alive. So you can pick it up and just casually read it. We said this the other night. Casually reading it with no study at all and you will benefit from it because of the Holy Spirit's empowering um, and enlightening. But you will not understand everything. You won't even come close to, to scratching the surface of the glory that's there. And we'll be able to study this book for our whole lives. Spurgeon said scripture widens and deepens with our years. We'll go the whole rest of our lives and never plumb the depths of it, but man, we're not going to get anything but leaves if we don't if we don't dig. And so, uh, we know biblical writers were inspired by God, God's purposes ultimately, but the authors had a purpose too. Sometimes they tell us. Um, we talked about this with the Gospel of John, John chapter twenty, that that he tells us explicitly why he wrote what he wrote. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so, as we study the book of John, we've got to have that cycling through our minds every time we take a passage. If you're going to preach through the Gospel of John, every time you approach a passage, you've got to have in, in your mind... As the glasses you put on that you read the text through, John wrote this so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that we would, we would have life in his name. Uh, and so, look at a couple other um, passages and, and the author's purposes. Do I have, um, do I have Luke 1 in the, on the paper for you? Somebody want to read that? as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, so what's Luke's purpose? Okay, to set forth an orderly account in order to do what? Okay, right. That you can have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So Luke tells us, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it. I also just always appreciate that, you know, God sovereignly has ordained, and this is how it looks a lot. God has sovereignly ordained that Luke is going to write this gospel. It's a sure thing. 
from before the foundation of the world, Luke was going to write this gospel. And on Luke's end, from earth, the view is this. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> it's often how it goes. First uh, John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, so his his purpose in the epistle is very similar to his purpose to to his purpose in the gospel. In the gospel, he writes so that you will believe and have eternal life. And then he says in this epistle, I write to you who do believe, so that you'll know that you've got eternal life. The author often, though, does not say things so explicitly and tell us this is exactly why I wrote, and here's here's the purpose. So we got to look closely at the text to figure that out. Um, we do that partly by seeing what the main themes are that they're addressing, and we can begin to see, well, this is what they're concerned about here in their writing. So the first thing we look at is who is writing to who? It's one of the best things we can do in our interpretation of scripture is to read the whole book in one setting to begin with. That's how these were meant to be handled. Um, and then to read through it several times is very helpful. Trying to get as much information as we can about the author and about the original recipients. And some, some books don't tell us much and some books tell us a lot. They're not all the same. Uh, but we'll look at Philemon Philemon is a short book, uh, a short letter. And so we've got the text of Philemon in full. And let's just have a couple of us read that out loud. And as we do, be looking for observations you can make about the author of the book and observations you can make about the recipient of the book. Do I actually, I might even tell you in there to underline certain things. Do I? Don't worry about it. All right. So as we read it, be looking for information about the author and information about the recipient. Somebody want to read the first three verses? Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Okay, so what do we see about the author and the recipients in those three verses? Paul and Timothy are writing it. Okay. And who's it addressed to? Philemon, Athia, Archippus, and the church. Okay. All right, picking up in verse 4, verses 4 through 7. One more. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Okay. What do we see about the author and the recipients there? You identify personal anything there? All right. Personal relationship. A happy one. So far. Right? <laughs> okay. I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. 
The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So this, Paul is writing to, to Christians he's fond of, Christians that bring him joy, and, and Christians who he considers to be good Christians, good, solid, mature believers. All right, let's go um, verses 8 through 11. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful to you and to me. Okay, so what, what, what can we observe there? Paul's a prisoner. He's an old man. What about his um, his position in the Church of Jesus Christ? He has the ability to do what if he wants in verse eight. I could just command you to do what I want you to do. All right. What about um, his relationship with Onesimus? Very close. In my imprisonment, I became his father. He became my son. And Onesimus, formerly to you, Philemon, by the way, was useless. <laughs> All right, uh, verses 12 through 16. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep, keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was departed for you from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than that, than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? All right, so Paul's kind of re-upping the things we've already observed. He, he loves Onesimus deeply. He loves Philemon. He believes um, Onesimus is a believer. He believes Philemon is a believer. He wants to see them united um, in that. Uh, somebody, verses 17 through 20. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So say nothing of your owing, nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Okay, what do we see? What does that those verses mean to you? <laughs> no, what do we see then? Right, right. So Paul is Paul is Paul is not afraid to be who who God has made him to be. For one, there's a boldness. Here. Look, I can command you. Look, you owe me everything. Yeah, I want some benefit in the Lord from you, from my labors in you. Right, but we we keep seeing this this clo there's a, a closeness of relationship here. There's been a, a, a personal interaction on this level that Paul says that. 
Um, verses 21 and 22. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Okay. Again, we see this same <clears throat> confident you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. Can't you just see? Like this is being read to Philemon in his church. Right? It's addressed to the church also. And every head just do like. People turn it. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. I'm going to look at him. I will look. Again, through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. I want to come and I want to stay with you when I come. There's this, this kinship, this closeness. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow servant, uh, prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow prisoners. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you in your spirit. So Paul, I'm writing this to you, my, my entourage here with me, by the way. We're all on the same page about this, right? But they love you. They greet you. <laughs> yeah. Luke, he's here with me. <laughs> you didn't know any better. It can be an advocacy for chattel slavery as well. If you didn't know any better, <laughs> but you should. Uh, uh, yeah, people use it. People used it in the Civil War. They used it to advocate for yeah, chattel slavery. Um, they were wrong and misguided, but. Um, so, so we, we observe, just from the text, there's a lot we can glean, isn't there? If we're focused on this, focused on that. We might miss the weight of it if we're not focused on it. But we can see so much about their, their relationship. This is not a strained relationship at all. This is a, a kinship, a, a close relationship. Um, but we can, when we approach a book this way, we get an idea. Okay, so... So the person who's writing, is he angry with the recipient? Is he happy with the recipient? Is he close with the recipient? Is he distant from the recipient? Um, is, is, um, is this intended for Christians? Or is this intended for a wider audience? That, we get that when we have that in mind and we approach the text. So we know, as we've just read through Philemon, with that in mind, close relationship. Paul is writing this to Christians, expecting them to, to respond like Christians. Paul doesn't speak to non-believers like this, right? You owe me everything. You owe me. You should do what I'm telling you. I could command you to do it, but I'm just going to ask you to do it. But let's not forget who I am. And let's not forget who you are, right? That's, so we, we get a lot from this. Um, so after we do that, after we look at the author and the recipients, we consider the occasion of the book. Is there something that happened that made this... Um, be written and some books reveal that more than others within the text this is one that happens to reveal it pretty clearly to us um, and so there there is when we come to the epistles especially it's really important for us to figure these things out what is the occasion and what is the purpose and those aren't the same thing the occasion is what is the situation what are the events that prompted the writing of this letter there is something that made Paul pick up a pen or made him have his amanuensis pick up a pen and him start dictating. What, what, what happened that made him do this? 
Um, and then purpose is what am I hoping is the result of this letter that I'm reading? What, what writing? What's the, what's the desired effect? And so that we need to understand that if we're looking, especially when we're looking at a, especially when we're looking at an epistle, but even it's helpful to know the occasion and purpose of the book of Deuteronomy, right? To, why are we repeating all of this stuff again? Why is this condensed version of all this space we've just been reading about? Well, we understand we're right on the verge of crossing into the promised land. We're reminding the people of God of who they are, what their history is. That, so, so we want to know those things. And so looking back at Philemon, what is the occasion that, that prompted this? And the purpose. Paul's writing to a fellow worker, he says. So, someone that he's, he's thankful for, that he prays for. But what, what has happened that's making Paul send this letter? Who's Onesimus? Well, he used to be a slave, and he's trying to kind of uh, reunite them now that they're both brothers in Christ. I guess, you know, because he went away from Philemon, right? So mm-hmm. he's trying to kind of make that <coughs> probably damaged relationship get built back on the brothers. But, okay, yeah, I, so... He, he wants Onesimus to do what's right. What did Onesimus do that wasn't right? He ran away. He maybe stole something, right? Paul kind of implies that might have happened. He might have taken something. And I, I think the picture is non-believing slave runs away, maybe stole some things, meets up with the Apostle Paul, becomes converted. He became a son to me while I was in, in prison. And now Paul says, you've got to do what's right but I'm sending you back with a letter because <laughs> I don't want Philemon to kill you uh, or to imprison you or whatever. Uh, and so um, we, we see the, there has been um, an occasion that has taken place and Paul has a clear purpose in what he's writing. And so we're looking for that in letters. Again, Philemon is an easy one um, to, to spot those things. But as we do that, that's going to help us understand what's going on in the epistle and it's going to focus our study of the epistle it's still um you know we believe in verbal plenary inspiration of scripture every single word of god inspired perfectly every word matters but we want to focus our interpretation on what the author is actually trying to accomplish here so we don't get off into all kinds of of rabbit trails and so we are we're able and and that, that's occasion and, and purpose, and especially in epistles, that's it's essential. Narratives, you know, it matters, but sometimes the occasion and purpose is, hey, I want to tell you all about the things that happened and the things that God did, right? You need to know your history. Uh, epistles, it's much more important for us to understand the occasion and the purpose, and, and we see that um, sometimes spelled out for us Right, these false teachers have come in. Um, in in Corinth, we see this this rampant sinfulness that has infiltrated the church, um, and so now when 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 we are reading narratives, we need to consider what the author chooses to tell us and what the author chooses 
not to tell us because that will help us to understand his intention. Um, especially when we've got a couple different accounts of the same event. So we get that in the Gospels. Uh, we get that in the Old Testament where we've got more than one telling of the same event. It's really important to, to think, what did this author tell us? And what did this author not tell us? And so when we look at David and Bathsheba, for instance, I look at me. Look at me being a, a bad PowerPointer. We're going back. We're going back, guys. No, we're not. Um, David and Bathsheba. The, the author of First and Second Chronicles does not tell us about David's adultery. Well, why? Because of what he's intending to do with his writing. What's he intending to do is to celebrate what's best about Israel and Judah's kings in anticipation of the great coming king. And so he doesn't tell us the lurid details of David's grave sin. That's not his intention in writing, but Second Samuel tells us the story. He's got a different purpose. He's presenting to us David the man, David the sinner, da David the one who is in need of a savior. And so there's, there's a different anticipation that's going on. We're looking at the greatness of kings and the waiting of the great king that's coming, and we're looking at even the greatest of humans being a deplorable sinner in needing of salvation in needing of a savior. And so the four gospels do that. And it's, it's part of why it's even with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. It just means they look alike. Um, and then John, he's just his own character over here. Um, but when we try to harmonize the gospels and you can, you can get Bibles like this that put all four gospels together and they try to make a harmony of all of them. It's not a super helpful thing. It can, be, it can be nice for like trying to wrap our heads around a timeline of events. But we actually um, blunt the force of scripture when we do those things. Um, we wouldn't want to do that in our Bible reading. Um, and so when we are, are overly intent to cross-reference um, between Gospels, we end up losing this concept of let this author tell us what he wants to tell us the way he wants to tell it to us. We've got to let Matthew be Matthew and Mark be Mark and Luke be Luke without trying to, to force the way the others tell it onto them. We've got to let them tell us uh, what they're trying to tell us the way they want to. And that doesn't mean we never cross-reference in the Gospels or anything like that. But we don't want to skew our interpretation of Mark because we're dealing too much with Matthew and Luke while we're while we're interpreting Mark, uh, and, and, and then miss what the author's trying to tell us. And so uh, some books are, are harder than others to interpret the intent of the author. Um, but again, we're always then, where, where that's harder, we're looking at the dominant themes and seeing what that can tell us about, about what they are concerned about. What is it they keep coming back to? What is it they keep highlighting? Then historical context, when we, again, pick up our English Bibles, that it can be deceptive uh, to us because everything's just there for us in one bound thing. Uh, like it's one cohesive, oh, and it is one cohesive unit, of course, but it's 66 different books written over a long span of time by different people for different purposes 
And so again, we we are we are reading other people's mail. We are reading something that is written to an audience that is vastly different from us. We are reading something where we're not always given the full picture, like we said about the epistles. We're, we're listening to one side of a phone conversation. We're hearing Paul's side, and sometimes Paul references what was said on the other end of the line, but not always. And we're left trying to fill in those blanks. And so one of the first principles of accurate interpretation is to make sure that our interpretations are historically grounded. The, the more we can know about the historical and cultural setting that these books are written from and to, very, very, very helpful um, for us. It's, it, it, makes it, um, it makes it more likely that we're going to arrive at the right conclusions about them. And we talked about that Tuesday night, didn't we, when we talked about the apocalyptic genre being this thing we just don't have a frame of reference for. Um, and so we need a frame of reference if we're going to rightly understand what's being said. And so this is our, our second principle for sound interpretation. The first one was literary interpretation. We looked at Tuesday night. It's different literary genres, each with their own rules for interpretation. Now it is historical interpretation. The Bible was written thousands of years ago in a different culture and language. We need to remember this as we discern the original author's meaning. And it needs to be said, because our world is stupid, that the author's intention is what it really means. There is a true meaning to this, and it's what the author intended. It's not something separate from that. And it's only one. There's only one meaning. Uh, There's only one interpretation. There are many applications, and we'll get to that when we talk about application on Saturday. The The old adage is, application is many, Interpretation is one, or meaning is one. Uh, And so it's what the author meant. And so we need to get as close as we can to understanding the author and and authorial intent. And so this this seems like a no-brainer to us. I mean, we hear that, we're like, yes, of course, it's what the author means. We understand that in the real world, but we just have to know that the world doesn't function that way anymore. And the world doesn't think that way anymore about all kinds of things. Um, And so, uh, John Piper says this, What has changed dramatically in the last 50 years is the concept of meaning and truth in our culture. Once it was the responsibility of historical scholars and judges and preachers to find the fixed meaning of a text, an essay, the Constitution, the Bible, justify it with grammatical and historical arguments, and then explain it. Meaning in the text was not created by scholars and judges and preachers. It was found because the authors put it there. Authors had intentions. This was a matter of integrity, to find what a writer intended. That was the meaning of the essay, the Constitution, the Bible. Everybody knew that if a person wrote no, and someone else creatively interpreted it to mean yes, something fraudulent had happened. But we've fallen a long way from that integrity. In historical scholarship and constitutional law and biblical interpretation, it's common today to say that the meaning is whatever you see and not what the author said or intended. This is absolutely true. We don't have to look any further than our Supreme Court to see this. When we talk about um, historicists or constitutionalists, it's it, it used to be that a Supreme Court justice, they knew their job was 
We need to get to the heart of what they really meant in the Constitution, and that's our whole job. And now you've got one camp that says that's our job, but you have the other camp who disagrees vigorously with that. No, it is not our job to see what these old white men intended from way back then. Um, it's our job to, to work off of that and to push forward from it. And so that, that is a radical change. It's a radical change that if you're of a certain age, you just only know that that's how the world works, but that's craziness. Uh, and so people do that with, with everything. We believe that God's intentions, though, revealed in the Bible are the supreme final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right. And so then, in matters that are not directly addressed in the Bible, what is true and right is assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of Scripture. And so we, we, we believe that God's intentions are revealed through the intentions of the inspired human authors of Scripture, even when they weren't fully aware of that. It's not always that the writers of Scripture know all the details about what they are writing. We see that with Old Testament prophecies. We see that with Isaiah. Um, but what that means is the meaning of biblical text is, is a fixed historical reality. It's a solid thing. It's not a shifting thing. It's, it's rooted in historical, unchangeable intentions of the divine and human authors of the text. And so, again, meaning doesn't change. Application does change. Meaning is one. Application is many. And so we, we take the one fixed meaning of the text. It means what it has always meant, and it cannot mean what it didn't mean. It, it can't have a new meaning. But our applications do change. The, they, they, they change with, with our, our changing world. But it, it's not legitimate to infer a meaning from a biblical text that's not demonstrably carried by the words that God inspired. We don't just get to make up whatever we want and say that's what this text means. It's, that's not how it works. There, there is such a thing as inappropriate application. There is such a thing as, as taking, you interpret a text and you interpret it and you, come and you say this is what it, what it means, this is what it meant, and now we apply it to our lives and we do that. It's, it's not a free-for-all with application. We don't just do whatever we want there. Um, but application does shift, it, it does change, it is particular, uh, but, but it needs to be faithful to the actual meaning of the text. We can't twist the meaning of the text in our application of it. Uh, and so, the process then of discovering the intention of God in the Bible, which is the true meaning, is a humble and careful effort to find in the language of Scripture what the human authors intended to communicate. But with our limited abilities and biases and personal sin and cultural assumptions we have all this baggage we're carrying with us it's like it's like lens after lens that we're putting in front of our eyeballs when we come to scripture and we attempt to do that and that obscures the biblical text for us and so what we're trying to do even in a class like this is help us to see those lenses and start removing them to at least know that they're there if we at least know that they're there that helps us quite a bit uh and so Again, we rely on the Holy Spirit for this. This isn't something we're going to just do because we're really smart and really dedicated. 
So as we observe what's in the text and strive to interpret its meaning, we're always aiming to discover what the original author meant. That's the goal of biblical scholarship. What the original author meant. And after we understand that, the original meaning, then we're able to apply that meaning uh, or to, to, to figure out what's the contemporary significance of this. Okay, so he wrote this, he meant this, what does that mean for me? But we can't do that until we know what he meant, what he really wrote and what he was really doing. So that brings us to this concept of the socio-historical context of Scripture, or, or Scripture as situated discourse, written to a particular people, in a particular time, in a particular place. So if you're going to visit a foreign country, what kind of things do you need to do to prepare for your trip? You're going to need to learn some things about that country if you're going to go stay there, right? So you're going to go onto the mission field. Are you just going to go blind? Like, I'm heading to China. I'll figure it out when I arrive. I'm going to Russia. we'll, We'll figure it out. We'll find out what the culture's like, what the people are like. No, that's not what you do. You learn their customs ahead of time. You, you learn their values. You learn their laws. Looking at you, Brittany Griner. Learn their laws before you go. Their languages. What, what language do they talk? Am I going to be able to communicate? What, what are the, the, the most important sites and locations here? This is what we do. So there's a good example uh, mixing what Jake just said about the lenses that we bring. Uh, and not all of them are wicked and sinful. Some of them, they just are what they are. Like we speak English. Yeah. None of us went went to elementary school and learned Koine Greek. They, it just didn't happen. And so because we're not in that cultural context, that historical context, uh, we just read the letter of Philemon together. And unless somebody had told you previously, none of you were like, Oh, Paul, you're so witty when he says, uh, I have Onesimus here with me, and he used to be useless to you. Uh, We miss it because Onesimus in Greek means useful. And so he says, I have useful here with me, even though to you he used to be useless. I'm going to send back useful to you. Like, Paul's being really kind of witty with with the use of his name, but it's one of those... There's nothing sinful that we bring in missing that. We just have to start knowing, I'm not in this context or culture. Mm -hmm. I have to fight to get there, or I'm going to miss all kinds of stuff. I've never even taken Greek. Somebody told me that one time, right? Mm -hmm. So we, I mean, we have to learn these things Mm -hmm. as opposed to just assuming, I'm going to sit down with my Bible and and the Holy Spirit is going to guide me into all truth. He is. That he's going to bring to mind all that Jesus has said, all that we have filled that well tank of our soul, but he can't bring up what's not in there. So if we're not diligently studying, rightly studying beyond ourselves, we'll never be there. Yeah, that's as good. Well as going. So depending on what your background and what your lenses are, say you come from a charismatic background, me and the Holy Spirit, we're going to go over to wherever you're going. Yeah. And Holy Spirit's going to guide me, and we're going to get this done. Right. And you have those lenses of your 
three supposed ideas of how it should work. And not that right. God can't do that. Yeah. Go ahead. There's a couple examples of people who God has done exactly that type of thing, but then we normalize it and go, well, that's what all of us should expect. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, God may do that and then allow you to die and bring glory to his name. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you don't have to die on purpose. Because you're, you're a schmuck. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, what, th there's always a danger that we're going to superimpose our lenses onto whatever it is that we're, we're facing. Our, um, our traditions or our values, um, our, our, our way of seeing things, our, our ideas... And when we do that, we're going to make a mess of whatever it is we're approaching. If we're going to a foreign culture, we get the the uh, reputation of being ugly Americans. Well, this is how we do things. You people are dumb over here. What do you mean you don't? Right? We we and when we come to the text of Scripture, we're in trouble. So whether it's whether it's international travel or reading someone else's mail, we need a guide. We don't just have it in us. We don't just know it instinctively. And we need, we need experts. We need advisors. Um, and so what are some of the things we need to know if we're going to read ancient texts? Uh, we need to know what the values of the society were like that we're, that we're reading this letter from and to. What, what's the basic unit of society? Is it the individual? Right? Because we, we, in our society, it's the individual. Right? And we'll, we'll literally like encourage people to leave their family if they feel restless. Right? Because it's me. Nobody tells me what to do. Um, not so in the biblical world. Not so in many parts of the world right now. The family is the basic unit. It doesn't reduce beyond that. We reduce it all the way down to the individual. They would never dream of doing something like that. It's the family. Well, how do the members of society fit together? How do people see each other? How do people interact with one another? What's the currency of the economy? What does it take to be considered wealthy? And what does it take to be considered poor? Is it all in resources, physical resources that we can see and touch? Or is there something else that, that's valued? We, we look at the life world of the place. What, what's their outlook on the world? What's their mindset? What are their values? What are their habits and their practices? We look at that for the author. We look at that for the recipient. Are they the same? Or are they different? We look at for anyone else mentioned in the text. In the society at large, we need to, to understand something of that. What about their social structures? What are, what are marriages like in this culture? What are families like in this culture? What about gender roles? How do men and women relate to each other and function in the, in the culture and in the society? What about racial and ethnic issues? Are there divisions there? What, what, what makes someone an insider and what makes someone an outsider in this culture? What, what, about, what about power relationships? How does that work? What are the dynamics there? What gives someone power in this, in this culture and what makes someone powerless? Status and class, how does that function? Um, 
education, what role does that play? These are things we just we just don't automatic we don't pick up and read, oh, first Corinthians. Well, here's the list of things I know now intrinsically about Corinth. No, we don't we don't know that. We don't have that information. Even physical features of the land have something to do with it. What's it like there? What's the weather like there? Is it hot? Is it mountainous? Is it isolated? Economic structures. How do people make their living here? What, what's the situation with everybody? Is everybody basically the same or they're ultra wealthy and ultra poor? Is there slavery here? Is there economic mobility? Or are you born into something and there's no getting out of it? What, what's the money and trade look like? What, what contact do they have with other, other cultures, other societies via export and import? You know, what, what, how are they bumping up against other cultures and being affected by them? What, what's the political climate? What are things like there? What are their, their political structures and what are their loyalties and allegiances to? How do they view the government? What's the hierarchy look like there? Is it, is it localized, local centric, or is it imperial? These are all things that have an effect on our understanding of what's actually going on in this. Are they the conquerors or the conquered? Are they constantly at war? What, what, what's happening there? Is there relative law and order or is it complete chaos and anarchy? Then the religious practice. Uh, what are their convictions? What kind of rituals do they do? Sacrifices, temples, holy sites, um, all of these things. Is it monotheistic? We believe in a God. Is it polytheistic? We believe in many gods. Is it, is it atheistic? We don't even believe in gods. We have something else. What, what's going on? And so mistakes to avoid as it relates to these things. We need to be careful then, since we don't just know all of this perfectly, we need to be careful that we actually are getting accurate information from accurate sources. Because misinformation is rampant, especially on our friend the internet, and especially through our friends preachers. Uh, misinformation is bountiful. Here's a good example. We've got a picture of it. Matthew 19. The camel through the eye of the needle. Are you aware of the needle gate in Jerusalem? This tiny opening. And the camel must completely unburden itself of all burdens that it's carrying. And it gets down low. And it shimmies on its knees. It's the only way it can enter through the needle gate of the city. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. You must... Remove all your baggages. You must humble yourself and get low if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't say this one, because I'm pretty sure we both taught this at some point. <laughs> Probably. I'm sure I did as a young man. Well, here's the problem with that. That's kind of neat. It's like a pretty cool sermon illustration. It's 100% made up. Not true at all. There's no needle gate. None of it's true. And, furthermore, it actually changes Jesus' point from his stated point... With man, it is impossible to, it's hard, and it's going to take humbling. It's going to take some work. But brother, you can do this. <laughs> you can do this. It, it changes everything based on a made-up, like, really cool story that's fun to tell in a sermon because people hear you and you're like, now this is a smart man who knows things about the ancient world. It's just not true. And we got tons of it. 
the priests going into the Holy of Holies and the bells on the rope because it was so easy to die in there, to be struck dead in the presence of God. And when the bells didn't jingle, they pulled them out. Somebody made that up. It's just not true. There's zero evidence that it's true. And so we have that with a lot of our much beloved our much beloved stories. Well, <laughs> let's spend the rest of our time. Well, we also don't know if what Jason is saying is true. Well, there you go. I could be making this up. That's a good question. How do we determine what is an accurate information? By not hearing a person say it and then going, well, no further research is needed for me to repeat this. Um, if you are going to preach and teach the Bible, you better know that what you're saying is true. So as young men, we did not care. We were preaching. We wanted to be faithful, but our, our frame of reference was, listen, doctrine is suspect at best. We've got the Holy Spirit, and that's what we care about. And so we're preaching. We heard preachers we trusted say it, and so we said it. Yeah, we weren't even going to the secondary sources, just like, well, so-and-so said it, and so it must be true. Uh, which is why the next point in the uh, material is read those secondary sources critically. You don't just right. swallow them. You don't just take it. Uh, if you can't back it up in at least two or three places or some where the next guy disagrees with it, uh, you may just file it away, but you can't present it as the unchanging truth of God. Right, and that's the thing. So I'm trying to remember the specific thing because I was preaching not long ago, got to a passage, and there's something I've heard my whole life that I've preached before. And I said, I can't in good conscience preach this, although it's an amazing illustration. And it, and it makes the point of the text. I can't preach it unless I really know it's true. And I started researching it. And I came to the conclusion, there is zero proof whatsoever that this is true. And I can't remember what it was. Maybe I'll think of it later. But, um, and so I didn't preach it. It has been a great illustration. It's powerful. It's probably apocryphal and made up. And I didn't preach it. And so that's what we do. We, and if we can't figure it out, then don't preach it. And don't, don't teach it. Especially if it's historical. If it's historical, you have to be really careful. Uh, and on the flip side of that, uh, almost every parable that Jesus taught was fictional. So he wasn't dealing in historical things, saying this is historically accurate. He does it a couple times. But most of the time, he uses fiction and telling that story. But it's presented as that. It, it's not presented as... Yeah, and you can do true. that. You can do it, yeah. You can and you can it. say, I've heard this many times. It's probably not true. I can't find any proof that it's true. But here it is. Yeah. You can do that. How yeah. Do we, how do we do that with church tradition? Or like how we think the apostles were persecuted and stuff? Do we still... You say tradition has it that this is how he died. Um, history tells us this is how, you know... Um, yeah, we, we don't know for sure, for sure, but we have at least historical sources we can point to. And we don't want to make, we don't want to make anything like that our main point anyway, right? So we're going to 
talk about the Apostle Paul, I'm not going to build my sermon around how the Apostle Paul died. I'm going to build my sermon around what the Apostle Paul said. The text of Scripture, that's our tool. Um, but we're going to say, tradition has it he was beheaded or boiled in oil in the Roman Empire, just after he wrote um, 2 Timothy. You know, um, but, so you can do that. And, and that's the good thing. When, when the text of Scripture is our bread and butter, and we know it, and we're making it clear to everyone else, we don't have to freak out a lot about, like, well, was he beheaded or boiled in oil? Because I kind of need to know. He was beheaded, by the way. Um, <laughs> definitively. Because Jason said so. Yes, because I say so. So that's what we do. We, we, we want to just be careful. And part of what happens is um, we elevate secondary information to be like this example is the big takeaway from the sermon every time this example is given in a sermon oh just like the needle gate and people make art of it <laughs> it's so we want to be very cautious with that the point of our sermon or our teaching is not our secondary thing it is the text of scripture that's what we've got that's what we highlight. Um, and so, secondary sources, we need to examine them critically. And that includes our favorite preachers. In fact, the, the example, I wish I could remember what it is. The example that I was thinking about, a couple of my favorite preachers, I was able to go back and see as I was trying to research, well, here's where they preached this. Here's where John Piper preached this. Here's where John MacArthur preached this. Except I just came to the conclusion, there's zero proof that this really happened. <laughs> and so, and it was something I had heard in, in college, you know. So, uh, we just want to be careful. We don't want to be propagating false information. That's generally what we want to avoid. And it makes us miss the point. In the case of the needle gate, we literally come to the opposite conclusion of what the text is explicitly telling us, but with our wonderful tale of kneeling camels. And so the other thing is we don't want to elevate background information above the significance of the text itself. That is so important and it's so easy to do because if you're a nerd, you get excited about it. You learn some new thing and you're like, I mean, this is... This is kind of cool, and I'm excited to tell people. Um, we got to be careful. When it, when it comes to Scripture, the text, we care about the text. That, that, that's what we care about. The, the historical background information is a window that we look through to help us see the text. Okay, Instead of looking into a, a flat wall because of our cultural misunder not lack of understanding. We want to look through the window to see the text. It's not a stained glass window. It's a clear window. And the more we understand, the more clear the window becomes. So studying the world into which the original text was written can help us in our interpretation and our application. And that's what we are shooting for. Um, okay, we don't have much to go in this lesson. Then we'll take a little break right after Values in the ancient world, just real quick, a couple of big ideas. First is cosmos and chaos. I guess I have a. In the biblical world, the distinction between creation and non creation was creation as order or harmony, 
versus chaos. And so in, in Genesis 1, we see that kind of language, the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the deep before the earth was formed. And people go, well, what's the deep if nothing had been formed yet? It's chaos. The Spirit of God was hovering over unformed chaos and made order, created order. Purity versus impurity, clean versus unclean, major categories in the ancient world. Honor and shame, perhaps the most major of major categories in the ancient world. It's the primary currency of the ancient world. Why, why do we want financial riches? Because we want the honor that comes with financial riches. Why do we not want to be poor? Because we don't want the shame that comes with poverty. So, so our, our financial wealth is useful because of the honor that it gives us. But honor is what we need. And we see this in some cultures in the world right now. We call them, what, do, what do we call it when a father kills his daughter because she was promiscuous? In a Muslim country. Honor An honor killing. Justice. <laughs> <laughs> Street justice. No, an honor killing. Because you've dishonored me by doing this. And it's worth your life for, for that. That's still, that, that, that culture is much more similar to the culture into which scripture was written um, in that regard. Uh, honor is about living your life through other people's eyes. How, how do people see me? And that is my primary concern. And honor can be acquired it can be earned or it is ascribed. You're born with it. Um, so, th so then, as we understand that thinking of the culture, now we understand statements that are made about the cross in Scripture, the cross of Christ, the shame of the cross. That, that the cross, the lowest of the low, reserved for political criminals and for slaves, not fit for Roman citizens, Public, public shame in the cross, right? Hung, hung up in the big lots parking lot, essentially, where the lowest segments of society are there to <laughs> mock you um, and ridicule you publicly. Hung naked. And um, after death, the shame of your naked body just hanging there for all to see on the cross. Um, they would crucify dead bodies in that culture just as a shame. It didn't hurt the person anymore. It was just because shame meant so much. Orthodox Jews still see Jesus through that lens, by the way. Yeah, they, sure. They still think uh, in that Eastern mindset rather than our mindset, which is one of the impediments to them becoming Christians, is how is it possible that the Messiah could have been shamed like that? It's right. not... And so they write them all. God would never allow this to, to happen. And that's the primary thing. We, we make the primary thing, and it, you know, movies like The Passion of the Christ, you know, the, you go and you watch this torture porn movie for a couple hours, um, and we come away like, that's the big deal. It's not the big deal. It's a big deal that Jesus endured intense physical pain, but that's not the big deal of the cross. The big deal of the cross is that, number one, the wrath of God poured out on the Son. But, but more than that, the Bible speaks more of the shame of the cross. Hebrews 12.2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we see this, these biblical references to Jesus enduring the greatest humbling, the greatest shame 
and the result being the greatest honoring and the greatest praise. Um, and then things like kinship and family relations. Um, like we said, it, the, this, it didn't get down to the smallest unit of the individual. It got down to the smallest unit of the family. And it didn't, it didn't shrink beyond that. They, they didn't refer to what they did. You know, you meet somebody now and the, one of the early questions is, what do you do? Their question was, who are you? Who are your people? Who do you belong to? And the Amish are very similar with that, actually. Uh, they want to place you in a family, in a, in a people. And this, um, the, the, the individual's identity is rooted in the community, in their family groups. And then things in, in the ancient world, reciprocity. Um, we even saw some of this in Philemon's um, among equals. Paul says, Paul says, I could command you, but I'd rather come to you as a brother and ask you. Uh, we see this, this honoring of one another and reciprocity and the gift. This, this um, I've done this for you, now you do this for me. Or I will do this for you, and then you do this for me. Sort of the I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. And then between non-equals, we see patron and client relations. So Paul, Paul kind of gives us both of these. Paul gives us the, we're brothers, I'm asking you to do this, but just so you know, I could tell you to do it. Um, and so they give you certain things. You give them honor and loyalty. Even in the language of the ancient world, they give to you grace. You give to them faithfulness and faith. Um, and so all of these things are at play in our understanding of Scripture. And so a grasp of historical background in a text is really important. It's, it's not the only thing. It's not even the most primary thing, but it's an important thing. And again, we're not just talking about casual Bible reading here. We're talking about the study of Scripture as those who would teach it. Um, and so these things are important. We wouldn't, we wouldn't, you know, teach this on a Sunday morning to the whole church and go, this is the only way you can read your Bible. You better, you better get serious in the amount of work you're putting in. It would benefit everyone, of course. You could teach this to the broader church. But when it comes to those who would, who would lead and teach God's word, there is a higher level of responsibility. And um, while this would be helpful to everyone, this is mandatory for us. We must do these things. Uh, and so, and the benefit is, is glorious. You get more of God's word. You get to understand it more fully. You see more of the facets of its beauty. So, okay, let's take a little break and then we'll hit the next one. All right, lesson number five. All right, so we're talking about context. We already covered the introduction the other night, right? Talking about somebody interviews you for an hour, and they use this one little statement you make. And, and the way they present that statement is the opposite of what you were trying to say. It doesn't mean at all what you were getting at. Unfortunately, people do that with Scripture quite a bit. And so this is the third um, of our principles for sound 
interpretation, contextual interpretation. And so we, we are assuming that the biblical authors writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are coherent thinkers. That they are not contradicting themselves. That they are able to build one thought upon another and keep a coherent uh, narrative going on as the Holy Spirit works through them. The Bible was written in coherent units that often build an argument. Develop a, th- a theme. Pay attention to what surrounds your focus of study. And so we have the, uh, the basic approach to Scripture. We want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, that's one of the, the basic bedrocks of biblical interpretation. Um, it, it's another way of saying we need sound contextual interpretation. Uh, and so we have this related rule in uh, it's in the Westminster Confession, but much more importantly, it's in the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Chapter 1, section 9, the infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is Scripture itself. Therefore, when there's a question about the true and full meaning of any part of Scripture, and each passage only has one meaning, not many, it must be understood in light of the other passages that speak more clearly. Very helpful for us to keep in mind. Like all things with the London Baptist Confession, very helpful. Um, And so we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. When we come to um, a difficult passage that's hard for us to understand, we want to look for the other places in Scripture where where it is easier to understand, where it it is more clear. We don't want to use this rule to blunt the force of what any individual passage is saying. Again, we said this with the Gospels, right? Let Matthew be Matthew, let Mark be Mark. We want to let this passage speak to us in its context, Um, and not force it to say exactly what another passage says, but we we do want to hear from the whole counsel of God's word. And so uh, if we were to conceive of the Bible as a chorus, um, Scripture doesn't speak in strict unison, but rather the different voices of Scripture are are speaking in harmony with one another, um, complementing one another with, with... with an overall theological unity, not disagreement at all. And so contextual interpretation is what we're looking at here. We should then read the Bible more like a novel than an encyclopedia. Not a novel in the sense that it's made up, uh, but that it is, it is every verse and every chapter of the book is connect, connected to the grand narrative that God is, is weaving for us. God's salvation of his people for his glory. So a good rule for us, especially in our study, is never read a Bible verse. Always read a paragraph, at least. And we may be teaching on a Bible verse, right? We may be, we may be teaching on just one verse, but we can't just lift it and set it aside. And so an, an encyclopedic approach to Scripture would be If we came together for church on a Sunday morning and whoever was leading worship that morning stands up and reads John 12, 32 and says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then they said something like, now we're going to lift up Jesus in our praises. And as we do that, he'll draw all people to himself. 
We just lift this verse out that makes this statement, and and we say that. It's it's really encouraging for us to tell people that we ought to sing, glorify the Lord in our in our song and in our hearts, but we shouldn't use that verse to do it. That's not what that verse is saying. Even though we did that too. Huh? Even though we did that. Oh, we definitely did that. We did all these things. I once preached a sermon in this church built on, you will remember it because you had your head shaved during it. We shaved Chuck's head on stage during this sermon. And it was all about how the disciples followed the rabbis so closely that they were literally coated in the dust that kicked up from their sandals. It's made up. It's not true. Anywho, uh, but people were really, really moved by it, and I think that's what matters. Uh, yeah, this is why I was fired. The official story was that I went to Pastor Maple Grove, actually fired in disgrace for my many infractions. Um, so the very next verse, if we don't lift this verse out of its context, the very next verse tells us what Jesus means when he says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. When John says, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Like the serpent in the wilderness was put on a pole and stuck up in the air, I'm going to be put on a pole and stuck up in the air, and when that happens, that's the way I'm going to reconcile all my people. Uh, And so, we need to be careful. We approach it not like an encyclopedia, And so it's essential for us to ask what came before this and what comes after it when we look at a passage. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. If we consider that or any of the other Ten Commandments in isolation, we might be tempted towards an interpretation that God is telling people how to save themselves. Here's my list. Do these things or don't do these things and you'll be saved. But if we read not just verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. If we read verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We realize that this isn't how you save yourself. This is because God saved you. God already rescued you. God already brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now he's calling you to live in light of that. Not to earn it, but how to live. And then it's all the more reinforced if we read the 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 19 chapters that come before it in the book of Exodus, and we see this thing play out. So, we, we want to look at a couple of statements here, um, fictitious statements that are often repeated, um, that, are, that are doing some of this, and, and see if we can identify what is going on with them. Statement number one, and I think I have have these statements in there, do I? The Bible clearly teaches that God is love, therefore we should never say that God would send anyone to hell. To do that would be a contradiction of his character. I hear this all the time. God is love. The Bible says that that's the number one thing about God. This is the number one thing that's true about God. God is love. So the God I worship would never send someone to hell. The God I worship would never condemn, never judge. Never call someone a whitewashed tomb, whatever it is. So what do we 
What do we make of that from what you know of, of Scripture and the teaching, First John? John wants Christians to have what disposition towards one another? Sacrificial. Sacrificial. Okay. He wants them to love one another, right? Sacrificially. Why? Because God is love. Because God loves us. But there's nothing, there's nothing in this passage that says to us, and just to clarify... God's love and hell can't both coexist in the world. If God is love, there can't be a hell. There's nothing like that. We're, we're bringing that in. We're, we're importing that. The, the author, John, has a lot to say about God's judgment, in fact. He speaks quite frankly about it in his epistles. And he defines love not as God saving everyone from hell, but in the sacrificial death of Christ. Uh, and so again, we lift this statement out, God is love, and we just let it stand on its own. We can come to all kinds of conclusions. But if we deal with it in its setting, it's going to be a safeguard for us to not come up with heretical ideas. Number two, uh, why are you confronting me about my sin? Don't you know the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged in Matthew 7, 1. And telling me you don't approve of what I'm doing, you're judging me. You're being judgmental. What's our problem there? Why does Jesus make that statement? What's he condemning? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, right? Not judgment. We all have judgment. We all better use judgment and exercise judgment. He is condemning Hypocrisy, and that is not the same thing. Um, in fact, um, he uses a metaphor that we have referenced tonight, thanks to our young friend Avery and the speck in his eye. Right? What does he tell us about that? Your brother has a speck in his eye, what do you do? Don't judge him, let him be. Remove the log from your eye then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye right so he actually tells us we ought to take note and we ought to do something about it so he he certainly did not mean this to preclude all correction you can never tell me what i'm doing is wrong because jesus said this we can't get away with that if we read it in context he clearly is telling us to do something about it he's just telling us not to be a hypocrite when we do all right, number three. When I step out on the... Oh. That's my favorite Can I tell you as a college <laughs> tennis coach at a Christian college, my desire to leap headfirst off a roof because of the use of this verse has occurred many times. When I step onto the basketball court today, I know that I'm going to win. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 says, God will give me the success. In that case... Amen. When you're in there and you want to jump off the roof, and I want to you just jump. Do all things through Christ. It's true. Long suffering. While just as valid. Just as valid. Well, what do we know? And we're not taking the time up to look all these up, but what do we know that Paul's actually talking about here? You can suffer. You can do it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. 
Is Philippians a prison epistle? Yeah, I don't think he, I don't know that he is in this one, but yeah, I mean, he's suffered greatly and he talks about it and that's where this statement comes. And so we use it to, to apply to sink and free throws or excelling at business or just generally knocking it out of the park in life. And it's just not what Paul is saying here. God is not promising you that. All right, so scripture interpreting scripture. Again, from the London Baptist Confession, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, infallible standard for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The authority of the Holy Scripture obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the whole scriptures are to be received because they are the word of God, the whole counsel of God, concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the holy scriptures. Nothing is ever to be added to the scriptures either by new revelation of the spirit or by human traditions. So as Christians, we build our lives on what God says in the Bible. What God says on the whole Bible and on nothing else. That's what the confession is saying here. And so when we talk about contextual interpretation and the importance of studying surrounding context, we often are kind of left with this dilemma. Well, how big? How far out do we have to go in order to be safe? And it's a difficult question to answer. I would say it's not always even the same depending on what passage we're looking at. But relevant context is, is like Shrek, also like an onion. Shrek's like an never mind. It's too old. It's been too long. It's been too long since Shrek. Right? So the core of the onion is the passage we're looking at. It's the verse we're looking at. It's the passage we're looking at. The layer that is most important is that first layer that touches it all the way around it, on the front and on the back. Beyond that context is another layer, maybe the full paragraph, maybe the full chapter. Again, it's building out in both directions, backwards, forwards. Beyond that is the layer of the entire book. Beyond that is the entire corpus of the biblical author. So I'm reading Philippians. After I consider all of Philippians, I consider what did Paul have to say, right? His, his writing. Then perhaps all of the New Testament or all of the Old Testament and eventually the outermost layer is all of Scripture itself. We need to at least consider all of these things. It doesn't mean that we're always going to think through them every time, right? But, but these things are all a part of the consideration for um, contextual interpretation. That's called canonical interpretation. We consider the whole counsel of God's word in our interpretation. So J.I. Packer talks about this kind of interpretation. I've got a long quote, I think, for you there. Right? On your paper? And that means I'm not going to read it. You can read it later. The basic idea, though, is this. That, that, it, that it deliberately attempts to understand the parts of the Bible in light of the whole. How do we understand this in light of all of Scripture? It, it assumes that all of Scripture is coherent. 
But it really does all fit together, that the divine author of Scripture has done well and has, has put this all together as an integrated unity, that Scripture cannot contradict itself, that Scripture, in fact, complements itself. And so canonical interpretation mandates that our inductive study of the Bible remain aware of canonical context as we interpret. And so this, uh, this implies that we need to be checking our interpretation of individual passages against what all of Scripture has to say. That's what we're doing. We want the whole counsel of God's word to be brought to bear on the passage that we're studying. So John 3.16 in context, and this is what you're going to be doing in your um, written assignment following this class. Is doing this. It's called we're calling it a close reading. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, somebody want to read the the cotext there? What surrounds it? Sixteen through twenty one. Let's just all open to John 3, 6, John 3, so that we're ready to, to read some of these things. Anybody that gets it, go ahead and belt it out. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, so in the paragraph, when we look at the verse in, in the paragraph, we see that God has, has acted, that, that Jesus is the one who saves sinners, that Jesus is the one who exposes the sins of the lost. Now, if we stretch this out into the whole chapter, just look before it. We're not going to read the whole thing. Just look at what happens before this chapter. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, right? A teacher of the law. Sneaks up to Jesus at night. Says, good teacher, rabbi. We know that you're a teacher come from God. No one does the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And uh, Nicodemus is really, by the way, as we go through the gospel of John, Nicodemus is... Is sort of an example John puts forward of what he hopes happens to every reader of this book as we see him progress through the Gospel of John. Every time he shows up um, all the way to salvation. Uh, but now he's interested. So what's going There's something good going on with you. What's going on? And Jesus says, you must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus is like, now how does that work? How do you get back into your mother's womb once you've already been born? Right? And so he... he um, says this, and that's what leads Jesus into John 3.16 in explaining what it means for him to be the Savior. And then as we move forward through the rest of the chapter, um, John the Baptist confirms what Jesus says about himself. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, We see John the Baptist confirming that that is true, exalting Christ. So then the book. We consider the book of John, and we've made reference to this several times. John told us why he wrote the book and why he wrote everything. So that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you have not life in his name. And so verse 16 here is a, is a concentrated statement of what John is wanting to accomplish. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to believe. Jesus is the Savior. Whoever believes in him will not pass away. Well, now putting this in the context of all of Scripture, this is really sort of the crescendo of the whole biblical narrative up to this point. If we take the Old Testament coming into the story of Jesus and just consider John, right? The Old Testament has been building to this. We, we had, we had um, in chapter 3 in the garden, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And we've been looking for him ever since, all through the Old Testament. Along comes Abraham, but that's not him. Here comes Moses, but it's not Moses. Moses says a greater prophet's coming. We go through David and we go through the prophets. It's not them. And now we come to Christ and here it is. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him. So it's this crescendo of all that's happened. And, and, and what follows is just an outworking of that. What does it mean that Jesus is the savior of the world who saves all who trust in him? And so... This is, is what we see. We see the, the gospel condensed into one sentence here. But when we consider it in light of the whole scripture, we see the bigness of this, of this statement um, that's going on. We see it as the fulfillment of everything else. And, and from, from this point forward, we see the inauguration of God's kingdom on our behalf. And the, the rest of scripture going forward is just sort of an outworking of that. So what about quotations? An immediate and fruitful application of canonical interpretation is to scour the New Testament for allusions to and citations of the Old Testament. When we read the New Testament, it is often quoting the Old Testament or alluding to the Old Testament. We don't consider one apart from the other. You cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. You cannot understand the Old Testament apart from the New Testament. The Bible's full of quotations and allusions to itself. And so they, they are they're a helpful tool in rightly interpreting. But again, this is all meant to lead us to worship. We don't do our biblical interpretation the way we dissect a mink in biology too. Um, we, we worship God in our interpretation. We stand in awe of God in our interpretation. We see the, the greatness and the wisdom of God. We see this, this crimson thread that runs through this book all the way through history. But all of history is salvation history is what we see as we understand these things. And we see the inner workings of the, the New and Older Testaments. And so it might be a common sense, but it's important to remember that Jesus and the disciples consider the Old Testament scripture. Uh, often at, at Bethel, Every time I teach Old Testament literature class, I have at least one student ask, now why are we even, the Old Testament's done, right? 
Like, why are we even studying this? We don't care, right? Like, it's, it's dead. We, every single time I have ever taught that class, <laughs> 20 times, however many times it is, I've had a student, every time a student asks that question. We need to remember how Jesus and the apostles saw the Old Testament. It is scripture. In fact, I've taken it in that context to not calling it the Old Testament. I call it the Older Testament and the Newer Testament, not the Old and the New, lest we be confused. Um, and so, um, the, the New Testament, at least in the form we have today, was, was not known by many of the earliest Christians. They didn't have it. They didn't have all of it. They might have had a letter from Paul or, or something. So if we want to understand the New Testament, we need to understand how Jesus and his disciples read and interpreted the Old Testament. And we should also look in the Old Testament because it takes place over such a long period of time. How does the Old Testament use the Old Testament? How do the later Old Testament authors interact with the Pentateuch? Because they do. Uh, And so we need to to see that. Uh, And so here then is the simple discipline for practicing canonical interpretation every time a part of scripture quotes or alludes to another part of scripture look up the original context and look at that in its broader context as well it matters um, and so that that helps us anytime that if i'm in the new testament and if i'm in in romans anytime paul references the old testament i need to look up that passage and I didn't see what's going on in that passage. How's Paul using that passage? And how does it relate to, to how we would understand that passage otherwise? And so this job is made very simple for us in a way that it was not throughout most of church history. And that is that our Bibles all have cross-references in them. Uh, very helpful. We have extensive cross-references uh, to to not only the passages that are being directly quoted, but the ones that are being alluded to. And if you've got a study Bible, that's only amplified and spelled out even more clearly for you. It's a treasure. I mean, if we're going to do inductive Bible study, I sometimes think, how hard must it have been before all of it? I can't, I would not, no, I couldn't have done it. I'm not up to that task. It's it's astounding. Um, And so, Look at a couple passages here um, that we've got. And so look at, at somebody read for us uh, the Luke 4 passage. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, thank you. Now somebody uh, read the Isaiah passage that's being quoted there. From Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. All right, thank you. Did you catch a difference between that? 
the difference summed up in the word Batman. Um, <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't quote the entirety of the passage word for word. He leaves out the day of the vengeance of our God. How, how does that help us understand what Jesus is trying to declare there? What he's trying to do about his say about his earthly incarnation. He's here to rescue, not to punish. All right. So yeah, it's um, he he's making an astounding claim for sure. He's calling himself this conquering ruler. He's saying, "Yes, this is about me." Right? That that, that it says all the eyes were fixed on him. That. He stands up and reads this amazing prophecy about the coming Messiah and then goes, I'm that guy. But the time of Christ's incarnation is a time of rejoicing. It is not the time. He is going to come in vengeance. And we're going to read about that later in the New Testament. Um, But the time of his incarnation, as he is pronouncing his arrival on the scene, it is the time. This is the year. This is the year, the favorable year of the Lord. This is the time for rejoicing and celebration. The time of judgment is coming. All right, let's look now at um, John 19, Exodus 12, and Zechariah 12. And we might... You know what, for the sake of time, let's just read... um, just read John 36 and 37, somebody. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. Okay. Now Exodus 12. So that, of course, what we didn't read there was a description of the crucifixion. And then applying this passage to Jesus. Now somebody read the Exodus 12 passage. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And you shall not break any of its bones. Okay. So, so what does the application of this passage to Jesus, the scripture, this scripture is fulfilled in, in his crucifixion. What is that? What do we understand from that then? He's the Passover lamb. Yeah, Passover lamb. He's the, he's the one true final sacrifice offered for sin so that God's judgment would pass over. Okay, now keep that, that quote from John in mind and let somebody read Zechariah 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please mercy, so that when they look up, they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Okay. So, what do we see here in this Zechariah 
12 and Zechariah 13. How does the context of that passage help us? What does the death of Christ do for us? To cleanse us from sin and uncleanliness. Um, and so, so, so John is beautifully pulling in these Old Testament statements, applying them to Christ, um, showing us, again, now we don't get to just do this with anything. We can talk about types and shadows, right? We can do that. Um, we, 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 can, we, can, we can can look at Jesus as, as the true and better any hero of the faith in the Old Testament. Um, we, can, we can look at all of these things, but we don't get to just directly go, this passage was talking about Jesus. The New Testament does that in every case that we get to do it with. Um, and so John does that. He pulls these things in to show us more of the purposes of God in the death of Christ. Now look at Matthew 4. And uh, yeah, let's read all of Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, You are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay. And now in Deuteronomy 8, we are getting these instructions for faithfulness. Whole commandment I command you today, you should be careful to do it. That you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to our forefathers. Right? So, Israelites, I'm about to, you're on the, on the cusp here. I'm going to tell you how to live as faithful people. And then in, in verse 3, he humbled you, did not let you hunger, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you make it uh, make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so he, Moses is telling them their history. He's telling them you must be faithful, you must be obedient. Here's your history, and then he 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 makes a statement, and then um, in Matthew, this applied to Jesus applies this to himself. What do, we, what do we see more clearly about Jesus because he does this? So we look at the, at the Israelites as their history is recounted for them and they're called to faithfulness, called to obedience, which do they live up to? Never, ever, ever, right? And we see Jesus, the one who's obedient, the one who's faithful, uh, the one who is true, the one who, who will do in the wilderness what they should have done in the wilderness, right? He's being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And he quotes the words of God about the Israelites in the wilderness in his obedience that, that he will humble himself, that he will trust in God where they did not. Um, and so, all right, let's look at, at biblical allusions. This is, this is not direct quotes. It's, it's references to the Old Testament, to, to themes and, and messages. And we begin to, to, I think, identify these more clearly the longer we read and study Scripture. 
um, we begin to, to piece some of these together. The more we know, for instance, the Old Testament, the more as we read the Old Testament, we go, oh, well, look at that. Look at what they're doing right there. Um, they can be harder to identify because we, we're not, you know, sometimes with the quotes, it's like, as the prophet Isaiah says, or as scripture says, or whatever. And we don't have that with allusions. So sometimes it can be difficult to know whether it's real or imagined that it's being done or that it's happening. So, so how do we know? First, we need to know our Old Testament. My assumption is you will not successfully memorize the entire Old Testament over the course of this life of yours. Uh, but we, the more we read it and the more we study it, the more we know it. Um, and so um, we, we begin to recognize themes and patterns and even phrases, turns of phrase. And I, I, I did a thing a couple years ago where I went through the whole Bible in... I don't remember what, a really short amount of time. And more than any time in my life did I recognize language and themes. Like, oh, I just heard that. Just a couple days ago, not long ago. Um, and so um, the more we study and the more we read, the, the more we do that. But um, the second thing we need to do is to, to pay attention to um, to particular phrases and wording that is either more common or less common. Does this stand out in any way? So um, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. That doesn't mean every time I'm reading my Old Testament and there's a donkey, right? I hear the story of Balaam and I'm like, there it is. There it is. No, it's just a donkey. Uh, what did Freud say famously? Sometimes a donkey is just a donkey. That's not what he said. Uh, right? So, so we don't do that. But, but then we get expressions like sheep without a shepherd. Right? Okay, well now if I hear something like that, that's not quite the same thing as just this animal that people commonly ride around on. Um, and so, again, our English Bibles do almost all of this work for us. Um, they, they, they're rich with these things. Good study Bibles are super helpful. Um, and just one major theme that we'll, we'll highlight that, that this happens with repeatedly is um, God's covenant. Really the covenantal structure, um, the covenants, but the covenant with Abraham is so significant uh, that we see being played out over and over again in the Old and New Testament. There are allusions made to God's covenant with Abraham. Uh, and God promises Abraham several things. He just, he takes this wandering pagan out of the field and he says, You, sir, here's the things I promise to you. They're not dependent on anything. They're not dependent on Abraham's obedience. It's unilateral promises many descendants he promises a land for them to live in that he will bless others through them and so these these promises that god makes to abraham are crucial for understanding god's plan how god's going to restore humanity to himself and so god references this a lot he references it a lot in the in the rest of the old testament and then it gets referenced numerous times in the new testament as well we've got I think in your sheets, a list of some of those references. 
and I think I'm not going to to have us do that just for the sake of time. Um, but but we see these things together, and what we find out is um, God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled. He keeps his promises. Um, he's faithful to his promises. He hasn't forgotten his promises. Uh, we can trust him. That we as Christians, we find out, we find out as we come into the New Testament and, the, and uh, especially the epistles of Paul, we find out we're the heirs. We're the heirs of those promises. And we see that with numerous things. Creation repeatedly referenced throughout scripture. The fall repeatedly referenced. The exodus significant event repeatedly, uh, repeatedly referenced. In a later class, you're going to do biblical theology, tracing themes all the way through scripture. And that's what, that's what this is. We see these themes trace their way all the way through Scripture as more and more um, of God is revealed over time. So, big idea, since the Bible has one author, ultimately, the divine author is the ultimate author of Scripture. It's coherent. It is capable of appealing to itself as true, as being revealed by the Holy Spirit. And so these quotations and allusions aren't just to remind us that God is wise or to dazzle us with how smart he is, but they're a tool for helping us to encounter the same themes over and over again so we get it, so we understand it, so we see it. And of course, it, it points us to Christ in all of Scripture, and that's the, the ultimate goal. Okay, we're going to keep trucking. Lesson number six. All right, so we, we're talking about how important it is to see things in the text, to observe, to, to see what's going on there. That's what inductive Bible study is built on. Uh, but we want to see more than we already see. We want to train ourselves to grow in that, to be better observers. And so we're going to talk about an important tool for that, the this, this structure of the text. What do we see in the structure of the text that helps us? Um, and so we're going to be building on everything we've talked about so far, the importance of context, of course, understanding the, the history and the genre we're dealing with. But looking now at how has the author divided this material into sections? How does he break it up? Um, how, does, how do all those sections fit together? And we don't... Um, we don't necessarily want to rely on what's already done for us by our English Bibles. We have a great gift in our English Bibles. We were just talking about the gift of cross-references. But we want to do this by paying as little regard as we can to verses and chapters because they were not there originally. This was, this was one, one piece. And so sometimes we could do this with whole books, but we can also do it with very small sections. And, and in our interpretation, especially if we're going to be teaching, we need to be able to do this with with small sections. Uh, and so sometimes it's very clear to us what these divisions are. Some, some passages is just very, very clear. One, one book says like grooves in chocolate bars where it's made to snap very easily. We have these clear sections. They just snap apart really easy. We see exactly how it fits. Um, we see this in, in John 1 verses 19 through 51 where the narrative is split into four sections by using the phrase, the next day. Okay, so the next section starts with the next time it says the next day. 
Um, and we, we see that pretty clearly. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 7, has three voices calling out in verses 3, 6, and 9. So we get these easy, really identifiable breaks, but we don't always have clues like that. Sometimes as an interpreter, we're just making a, an informed judgment. And it's part of the reason, I'm sure, I'm sure Matt could, could attest to this, any of you who, who have planned out preaching or teaching uh, ahead of time. Um, I have given our secretary some 479 revisions of my preaching schedule for the book of Romans because I'll start working on a text for that week and I'll be like, well, I can't preach all three of these verses. Are you kidding? Um, and I got to change it. I'm only going to make it through one or two or whatever. Um, and so, so it can be difficult, but we as the interpreter are just doing our best to work and, and see what this unit is and when it comes to teaching, what I can handle. Sometimes it's not that there's not a unit of thought. It's that I've only got 45, 50 minutes and I can't get more than this verse in in that. Or sometimes it's going to be these two words today that we look at. Um, and so that's, that's just how it goes. When, when, when we're reading a narrative, though, it's important to, to think in terms of what we think about with, with narratives or even, you know, Kareen with the, with the dramatic world. We're thinking about scenes, scene changes, what, where, what's happening with the action, um, with dialogue, themes like Psalms and Proverbs. We can often divide by who's speaking um, and see, see some of those things. With things like the epistles, they're, they're divided by arguments, points, um, each argument building on the next one. And so occasionally you encounter larger sections where the important ideas are not laid out sequentially, but are divided thematically into a couple different themes, uh, considering the whole passage under those headings of those themes. There's, there's different ways we could do this, but we'll look at a couple common structures in Scripture. One is bookends and sandwiches. Sometimes the, the author will use the same or very, very similar phrases at the beginning and end of a section and that helps us know the passage. Almost like an inclusio. Here and here and everything in between. This all fits together. Now that, that doesn't mean just, just, just so you know that you're going to handle that all in one, in one fail swoop as a, as a teacher. Uh, so, for instance, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Romans 16, verse 26, But now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. So there's this poetic symmetry there at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. Everything in the middle ties together. Paul's not leaping from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, and they're all unrelated. They're all tied together. They all fit together. But we're not going to handle the entire book of Romans in one year even um, uh, Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes right Matthew 5 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the last one ends with blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the, these bookends help us know that, that in the midst of this large teaching of Jesus we've got this um, kind of block of thought uh, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, 
These aren't just good people. These are all the people that are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we start with it. We end with it. And then when we have the other things in the middle, like they will see God, we realize that's related to the, they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. So these, these things help us to in, interpret. Then we got chiasms. Um, secondly, we talked about that with some forms of poetry. But it actually, this, this sort of poetic form extends itself out beyond poetry. Hebrew writing uses this structure outside of poetry just to emphasize the main point, uh, the climax of the passage. So chiasm is a poetic structure, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's a, it's a literary structure, but it's common to poetry. Um, but they, it's used in Hebrew, in Hebrew literature all over the place. Um, and so we, we see this. So we come to Mark 11. What's going on in Mark 11? Do we have a temple cleansing going on or do we have a temple cursing going on? So we often refer to the Jesus's temple action always as a temple cleansing, right? No matter what, what book we read about it in. So Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 22. Someone, let's open to that. Mark 11. And would somebody care to read that for us? Mark 11, verses 12 through 22. Someone who can read clearly and quickly. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat the fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for ways to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city and early in the morning... As they were passing by, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Okay, thank you. All right, so look, at, look in this passage, right? So Jesus goes into the temple. He does, he does what, he, what he does here uh, in the temple. And so a couple questions that we see. When, when Jesus goes in and he overturns and, and he overturns the tables of the money changers, did they need money changers at the temple? They needed money changers at the temple. You could only give a certain kind of money at the temple. You could only give in temple coinage. They needed money changers. Okay. Did they need people selling pigeons? They needed people selling pigeons. People were traveling great distance. They couldn't bring... They couldn't bring the sacrifice with them often. They had to get the sacrifice when they got there. People were carrying things through the temple. Did they need people carrying things through the temple? Yeah, things had to get from one place to another place. So why is Jesus mad here? Is it, what do we often hear? They, were, they had completely taken over the temple uh, or the, the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could not worship. Does Mark tell us that? Mark does not tell us that. 
He does not say they were interrupting worship. Well, it's because they were overcharging. They were charging exorbitant rates. And that's why. Does Mark tell us that? Mark does not tell us that. He does not say that they were overcharging. But sandwiched around this story in Mark is a particularly strange event in the life and ministry of Jesus. And again, gospel writers tell us what they tell us, the way they tell us, on purpose. This is a great example of that. Luke doesn't mention the fig tree episode at all. It's weird. Matthew does it, but Matthew doesn't sandwich it, right? In Mark, Jesus curses the fig tree, goes to the temple, comes back, and the disciples are surprised to see the fig tree dead. In Matthew, Jesus goes to the temple, and then they all go to the fig tree. Jesus curses it, and they stand and watch it die. And people point to these two passages, and they go, well, there's your contradiction. In one, he does it, goes to the temple, they're surprised it's dead. In the other, he goes to the temple, they go to the tree, and, they're surpri- and they watch it die right in front of them. So that's a contradiction, I guess. No, we've got we to gotta understand what the Gospels are. We've got to let Matthew be Matthew. We've got to let Mark be Mark. The Gospels are theological history. It's so important for us to do. So, so what is Mark showing us? This fig tree action here. It's the only negative miracle of Jesus. Verse 13 says, it's not the season for figs. So why is Jesus mad at the tree? Seems irrational. It's not the season for figs. What? There are no figs here. This tree needs to die. But leaves and figs should appear together. And so the tree looks like it's bearing fruit. It looks like it's full of life, but it's not. And the fig in the Old Testament is a metaphor for Israel. Jeremiah 8.13 And I would gather them, declares the Lord. There are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. What I give them has passed away from them. Joel 1.7 It has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So the cursing of the fig tree signifies something important. It is the judgment of God on the fruitless Jewish people. And the 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 structure of that points us in the direction of what's going on in both events. How they, they, they are this sandwich that Mark creates. And Mark does this a lot. In fact, it's called a Markin sandwich because he does it all the time. He uses this structure. Um, he does this because they're mutually interpretive. They help us to understand what's going on in both events. So let's look at this chiastic structure in Mark 11. Okay, so it begins with Mark 11, with the pilgrims welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. Right, we're, we're, we're right, right near the end of, of uh, closing in on the end of his ministry, even though Mark has a long ways to go in the gospel. Uh, but they welcome Jesus in with celebration and with song. Then we go and he curses this fig tree that appears to be in full bloom, but has no life, no fruit whatsoever. Then in the middle, we get to the middle of the, of the sandwich. And the chiasm is showing us what's most important. What's really going on is the temple action. He just goes in and clears the temple. Then on the back end, that corresponds here, right? So you see how they, the fig tree is cursed. Now the fig tree is withered. And then finally, where Jesus was once welcomed with song and celebration, Jesus is now challenged by the temple authorities. 
So, so he's welcomed on, on the first level by the pilgrims outside the city. They enter in in royal procession. They come out and they meet him. It's really a picture of, of the return of Christ as it's painted for us, where Paul says, we'll meet him in the air. We'll meet him in the air and return with him to um, proclaim him as king. He comes into the city and he enters the temple area and he sees lots of action. There's a lot going on. Animals everywhere, sacrifices, money being given, people flooding in and out. But what he does not see is true worship going on. He sees the appearance of life. The, the focus is on the wrong things. They, the, you, you, you have the appearance of holiness and reverence and purity, but you don't have the heart of holiness and reverence and purity. Then he goes to the fig tree, which is similar. The fig tree looks like it's full of life, like it should be bearing fruit, but there is no fruit, and so he curses it. And, and the leaves that make it look like um, that make it look like it has life are about to wither up and die because he has, has cursed it. Um, and so th this tree is a metaphor of the temple he just saw. So then Jesus, acting like an Old Testament prophet, goes to the temple and provides a powerful sign act. That's what it's called, the things the Old Testament prophets did when they did these things that were really a message from God. It's a symbolic demonstration. It's not a cleansing in Mark. It's not a, here's this pure temple and you're defiling it with your wicked business practices. He pronounces a curse on the temple system. This, friends, is dead. This is fruitless. This is done and it is gone and it is cursed. Then they go back and find the fig tree withered. Jesus teaches about prayer and forgiveness the disciples are to have faith in God and not the temple. Then finally, Jesus is rejected, rejected by the temple leadership. They, they understand that Jesus is challenging them in their system in what he just did. And so the rejection by the leaders is the, is the opposite bookend of the, the welcome by the pilgrims. So that's the chiastic structure, and that's the Markin sandwich, and that's what Mark does a lot. Uh, it shows us what's going on. He takes two different things and they help interpret one another. And they help us see the big idea of what's actually happening. And so that's not to say that in any of the other Gospels we don't see the image of Jesus purifying the temple. We just see what Mark's trying to teach us about the temple system. The temple system's dead. The temple system looks alive and it's not alive and Jesus curses it. Why? Because he's the temple. That, that way is, is done. And so that's, that's how these structures can help us to understand. And again, that's why we need to let, we can't understand what Mark is saying if we're constantly importing Matthew into it. And, by the way, when the opponents of God's word come to us and go, look at this contradiction, and we don't understand any of these things, we're like, yeah, look at it. I don't know what to do about that. And again, it's, with some of these things, as we look at it, we just go, boy, some of these things that people really have as their gotcha cards against the authority of God's word are just based in ignorance. <laughs> and uh, just uh, we can clear them up in one night. Um, and so um, it's, it's, an, it's important, but it helps us to get to, um, get to the root point. Boy, we got... We got... I don't 
I don't think we can. We're going to try. Sense flows. We're going to get through part of it. Um, and so for, for some of us, understanding how sentences function and flow together, it's pretty natural. It just comes natural to us. It's not that we didn't have education at some point, but we just got it. For, for gifted communicators, it's often they just get it. They understand. They understand how language works. Their comprehension is, is quick. They know how words function in a sentence, and they don't have to think through all the parts of it. They just understand how it works. It, like we said uh, Tuesday, there's an art and a science to it, and some just have the art down. I don't know. Oh, yes. <laughs> Such as. But for most people, it's not so natural. It's not, not so easy. That does not excuse us from doing the hard work, though. Um, if God, by the way has called you to preach, you have to do the hard work. It doesn't matter if this comes easy to you. It doesn't matter if you hated English in school. If God has called you to preach, you are a man of words. That's what you are. And, and uh, your previous track record in English class has no bearing on that. This is what you're called to with your life. The, the English language, words, that's your tools of the trade if you're going to teach God's word. Um, and so, so words matter. And so if you're going to do this, a mastery of the English language is essential. Um, to interpret God's word um, and to, pro to be an effective preacher for sure. Um, and one of the biggest issues, and it's, it's true in my own history. So let me just admit to that readily. Uh, preaching can never be amateur hour. And it gets approached that way all the time. Unqualified people, untrained people presuming to stand in the pulpit and speak for God. That is a high and lofty calling. And we better take it serious. It, it's, it can't be amateur hour. And, and so particularly if it does not come naturally to you, and especially when you're less experienced, those of you that are young, you don't have a, a, a lot of history under your belt, sort of like preaching, a young preacher is going to preach, and I say, 30 minutes or less until you've preached enough years to earn the right to preach longer than that. Uh, this is similar. If you're young, you got to do extra work. You, the younger you are, the, the longer the passages you're probably going to preach are, and the older you are, the shorter they're probably going to be, because you just see more than you used to see. You understand more than you used to understand. And so that, that's true of this, this work. The older you get, the more you start to see how these pieces fit together. Um, but a sentence flow is, is what's helpful. And that's what we're going to be talking about here. Uh, it, it's just a way to portray visually grammatical structure of a, of a text. Uh, to help isolate the central idea of the text. To, to help you get to the key words of the passage. Uh, to how the thought is being formed. It's to help you ask the right questions of the text, to, to ask the who and the what and the why and the how of the text. It's, it's to draw your attention to the verbs in the text. The action in the text is found in the verbs of the text. So we've got to be able to identify what the verbs of the text are. Uh, and, and I'm just going to take a, a little rabbit trail. I think, and then that's going to be the end of our night. Um, and then we'll do the, the other part, because we don't have time anyway. 
you got to know what's going on with the verbs. That that's essential in biblical interpretation, and it's it's essential in our in our biblical teaching. Uh, we need to parse the verbs. Greek doesn't work like English. You know, the verbs have a tense, and they have a mood, and they have a, a voice. That the tense tense is what kind of action is going on um, in the text? Is is it happening in the present? Is it happening in the future? Is it happening in the past? Is it continual? Is it one time? Um, Greek verbs tell you that. Uh, the mood is, is it's the statement's relationship to reality. Is this a fact? Is it a statement of fact? Is it a question? Is it a command? Um, the voice is, what's the relationship of the subject of the sentence to the action that, that's happening? Is the subject the one doing the action? Is, 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 is that, they're the one producing the action? Are they being acted upon by something else? Uh, and so that... We just don't know that. We need language tools for that. And we've got them, but we need them. And if we think we can just take our English Bible and preach, Luther says, um, trying to, to, to use a translation to study the Bible when you can't access the original languages, it's like trying to kiss your wife through a sheet. Like you can get a sense of it, <laughs> but it's not great. His wife would have probably been happy to kiss him through a sheet, actually. But um, since since... Since we're on it, and um, we're not going to get any further, let's talk about the moods of verbs, because we need to understand them. That It's really important. The moods of verbs are really important, and we need it in our interpretation, but we need it, if you're going to preach, you need these, these moods of verbs in your preaching um, as well. And so, we've got the indicative the indicative mood, it's, um, it's a statement of fact. So if you're, and you're preaching, it's like the first gear, right? We're, we are proclaimers of facts. We're proclaimers of truth. Ours is a fact-based faith. Um, we, we commend ourselves to men's conscience by an open declaration of truth, Paul says. That's what preaching is. We've renounced underhanded ways. We just commend ourselves by an open statement of truth. Right, so indicative. You can come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus. Uh, interrogative. It's, it's the second gear. It's, it, it ends with a question mark. We, we have to understand the questions in the text, but we have to ask questions of our, of our listener too if we're going to teach the word of God. We're, we're teaching for a response. We're teaching for soul searching here. So will you come? It's not enough to say, you can come. You have to say, will you come? Will you believe? What about you? The imperative is a command. It's the, the third gear. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. We command. Scripture commands. And so we need to command in our, in our preaching. You can come to Jesus. Will you come to Jesus? The imperative is, you must come. You must come. And then the fourth gear, which we shouldn't live in full time, the exclamatory mood, and ends with an exclamation point. It's, it's deep emotion. It's, it's passion. It's fervency. It's intensity. It's urgency. It's, it's energy. Right? Oh, that you would come. Oh, that you would come right now. 
Not, not that you'd come. No, there's no waiting. There's, 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 there, there's no tomorrow. Tomorrow belongs to Satan. That you would come right now. It's Jesus standing on the steps in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you to myself. Under my wing like a, a hen gathers her chicks. And then to the religious leaders. But you would not let them come. It's, it's, it's full of passion. It's full of, of energy. And if there is no passion, there is no preaching. It's a lecture. That, that, that's, that's all it is. And, and, and if we think about the material we've got to work with, preachers and Bible teachers, what God has given, heaven and hell and salvation and damnation and the cross of Christ, God's eternal decrees, the return of Christ, all of these things, if we, don't, if we can't muster up a little energy on that one, and we can just sit down and let somebody preach who's qualified to do it. And, and we, we need this. We need to under, the verbs, especially if you're going to deal with an epistle. Maybe I'm intense about this because I'm preaching Romans for the last two years. <laughs> we have to understand the verbs and we've got to preach them. We've got to preach the verbs or we're going to be one note, ineffective, boring preachers. And the world doesn't need any more of those. Okay, rabbit trail concluded. We'll pick up on the last tiny bit. We'll do a, a sentence flow to start our time Saturday morning. Um, anyway, I don't, I got one crack at you young guys. I got to take it. I got to take my shot while I got it. Huh? Well, I don't know. I just mean I only get one shot at you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your word. Lord, uh, help us to see wondrous things in your word. Give us eyes to see by your spirit and hearts receptive, lives devoted in worship. Make us faithful interpreters of your word so that we can be faithful proclaimers of your word and faithfully obedient servants of yours in this dark world, shining beacons of light. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.